right, man, let's uh, get started by uh, giving a warm welcome to everybody at all of our six campuses. Hola to everybody at our Spanish service, uh, to Doug and Linda who are watching on the live stream in Kamloops, British Columbia. Glad you're with us today, man. Thanks for coming to be a part of our service. While I'm reaching out, let me say happy Father's Day to Lee. Uh, just got home uh, from uh, Middle East. He's getting a warm greeting from his little Ellie here. Uh, Lee is a soldier who watches our services on live stream in the Middle East every week. Welcome home, bro. Glad to have you back. And as long as we're saying Happy Father's Day, let's have all of our biological dads, soon-to-be dad, adoptive dads, foster dads, stepdads, and granddads stand up. Stand up, stand up. If you've got the energy, stand up, guys. Let's thank God for these noble men. Noble men. And all the good I pray they're leaving in their wake. Father, thank you for these men. I pray, God, they will be leaders, that they will take responsibility, take spiritual leadership in their home, Use them, Father, to leave a wake of blessing behind them, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen, amen. Now, if you're new here at Compassion, let me welcome you to a series of messages that we're calling Endgame, which is a verse-by-verse -verse study through the book of 1 Thessalonians, which Paul wrote to encourage followers of Jesus, just like us, to stand firm in their faith until Jesus returns, and then that will be the end. Now, 1 Thessalonians is actually the first letter the Apostle Paul ever wrote, and he wrote it to a strong but new church that he loved up in northern Greece. Now, Paul actually started this church here in Thessalonica uh, on his second missionary trip. He was on a global missions team with three other guys. They traveled to Thessalonica in about AD 49. Uh, man, they were there for just a few weeks. The whole story about this is in Acts 17. I would encourage you to read that. In the first three weeks, he established a church there among the Jewish people. And then those Jewish believers started reaching out to non-Jewish people. So this was a, a really racially diverse church. And they led lots of people to a life-changing relationship with Christ. And man, if you've read the story, you know what happened next. There were people in that culture who did not appreciate the values of the kingdom of God. They didn't appreciate it. They didn't appreciate people who took their faith that seriously. They didn't appreciate people who call a sin a sin. They didn't like it when their family members started leaving their dead religions that were based on some mythological Mother Earth fertility cult or the teachings of some dead hero rejecting that and following the Lord Jesus whose resurrection from the dead was a historical fact that had played out in their day. And to make matters worse, back in the day, they had these traveling <clears throat> health and wealth, you know, kind of motivational types who are traveling around and they go into a city and we dug into this a little bit last week, but these are captivating communicators who use their message to weasel their way into the beds of weak men and women and the pocketbooks of gullible people. And the Apostle Paul knew this, so when he came into town, he didn't ask anybody for anything. He supported himself with a job during the day. He preached the gospel in the evenings and on the weekends with such power and conviction and integrity that hundreds of people in Thessalonica started becoming followers of Jesus. Dude, so many people came to Christ, it affected the economy of that city. And there were people who hated Paul for that. I mean, imagine the anger that might be focused on some of us if our church got so strong that the strip clubs in this town had to shut down because so many of the ladies in the adult entertainment industry were converting to Jesus. Which, by the way, we have a team of women who go into the strip clubs in our city every week to try to lead some of these ladies to Jesus, and it's working. Can I hear an amen? Yeah. Bam! 
Listen, imagine the blowback that we would have if so many people converted to Christ that drug dealers couldn't do business. Nobody wanted to buy crack anymore. Imagine if the liquor stores had to start scaling back because there weren't enough alcoholics left to sustain their business. I'm not talking about somebody who wants to take a drink every now and then. I'm talking about addicted people who drive the profitability of that industry. What if they got spiritually well and didn't need that crutch anymore? Business would dry up. And let me tell you, there would be people who hate us, hate us for that. And that's what's happening in Thessalonica. And listen, Paul, as a communicator, is kind of the lightning rod. And life got so dangerous for him that he had to leave town to keep the people that hated him from hurting these new believers in the church in Thessalonica. And so he gets on a boat and he sails, you know, from Thessalonica all the way down here to Athens. And that's where, you know, that's where he kicks off. He thinks, look, that's the next city needs a church. We'll start one right there. But man, he is praying for these Thessalonians. He is so concerned about them. He can't sleep. He sends Timothy, one of his partners, back to see how everything's going. And dude, Timothy comes back with just amazing report. And Paul is so thankful to hear all this good news that he thinks, I got to send these guys a letter of encouragement. And so Paul actually uses the word encourage or encouragement nine times in this little short book. Now, the word encourage is a translation of the Greek word parakaleo, which is a compound word. You know, kaleo means to call, para means alongside. And you can almost see that. I bet you've experienced that when you're hurting or weak and somebody just came alongside and put an arm around your shoulder and encouraged you. You know, the English word encourage comes from a French word that means to make strong, to implant courage in somebody who's weak. And dude, I tell you, when that happens, it's kind of a beautiful thing. Matter of fact, all the news stations were showing an example of this uh, this past week, you know, when Nicholas Mahout's son uh, came up and encouraged him after his very disappointing loss in the French Open last uh, week to uh, Leonardo Mayer. Did, did y'all see this? Take a, look, take a look at this. He's upset, but take a look at what happens here. kind of cool, man, reported on every news channel this week. Well, you know, what, you know why that video went viral? Because of the awesome power of encouragement. And encouragement means the most, not when you're winning, but man, in a tough loss. Now imagine you see somebody who's tired or hurt or, or taking a loss or taking a hit, maybe a single parent whose spouse is, you know, punked out and their heart is broken and, and their, heavy, their heart, heart is just burdened, uh, their burden is heavy with loss. And then a strong friend calls out to them, comes up beside them, throws an arm around them, holds onto them, holds them up when man, it's hard to go on. I'm telling you, that kind of encouragement is a powerful thing. 
Imagine a foster family in our church who's, you know, showing the love of Jesus to a student by welcoming them into their home and treating them like part of the family. And it's a noble thing, but man, it's a big adjustment. It's a big adjustment for the student. It's a big adjustment for the family. And then just imagine a life group in our church says to that family, hey, we want to do a pizza night for your family once a month. Because we want you to know that we love you. And dude, we're in your corner and we just want to create a compassionate touch point every month so we can hang on to you guys. I'm telling you that kind of encouragement is powerful. Imagine a high school student who is afraid because what our culture values seems to directly contradict what Jesus says and they know that. But they are afraid that if they don't just you know, fit in and go along with the herd, they're going to get left behind. And then some strong student some strong volunteer in our student ministry comes alongside them and whispers words of encouragement in their, in their ear and kind of helps them overcome that fear and replace it with bold faith. Now, friends, encouragement is a gift that you could give somebody every day. Let's ask Paul to coach us on how to do that today. So if you've got a Bible, open it up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians 2, if you don't have a Bible, then we provide one right here in the chairs nearby. Uh, grab that, turn to page 886, you'll be good to go. I'm going to start reading in uh, chapter 2, verse 17, and I'm going to read a long way, uh, and I'm going to make a few comments as I go along, okay? Look at verse 17. But brothers, when we were torn away from you, stop right there. I <laughs> didn't read very far, did we? The Greek word that is translated torn away is the word we get the English word orphan from. That's the word we get orphaned from. And Paul is having to leave the people in Thessalonica so quickly because of the persecution that it left him feeling not like an orphan child, but like a parent, you know, whose children have been just torn away from them because of circumstances, which is just his way of letting us know how much affection he has for these people in Thessalonica, how much he loves these folks. He says, even though we were torn away for a short time, in person though, not in thought, because I'm thinking about you all the time, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. Now watch what he says next, because some of y'all are struggling because of this same reason. And this is kind of off the grid, so just watch this. He said, we made every effort to see you. We wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan stopped us. What? Satan stopped the Apostle Paul. We'll get back to that. Verse 19, Paul switches gears. But man, what is our hope? What is our joy? What is the crown in which we will glory in the presence of the Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Paul loves these people. He's proud of these believers. And dads, listen to this. He does not think that money or houses or sports or fame are his greatest treasures. He counts his greatest wealth as relationships. Now look at chapter 3, verse 1. He said, when we could stand it no longer, man, we thought it best to be left by ourselves. What he's saying is Paul and Silas are going to stay in Athens. And man, we sent Timothy, who is our brother and God's fellow worker in spreading the gospel of Christ. Why did we send him to Thessalonica? To strengthen you, to encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials we're going through right now. Now when you see this word unsettled, think earthquake. Think Hurricane force winds. That's what he's talking about. Now, we coastal people. So we all know that there's two kinds of houses, right? When a hurricane comes over, there's two kinds of houses. There's the houses that stand firm, and there's the houses that get blown to bits. And what Paul is saying is that strong, encouraged faith, bro, it will carry you through the hurricane, right? He says next, you know quite well we were destined for them. 
destined for hurricanes, earthquakes, spiritual trials, really destined? What's the Apostle Paul say? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Why don't you grow up and get your head right about that? Let's get your head right about that. In fact, he said, when we were with you, we kept telling you you were going to be persecuted, and it turned out that way, as you all know. You know, you've got to love the Apostle Paul. He rolls into Thessalonica. There's no church there. And he starts winning people to Christ, and people are like this. They want to give their life to Jesus and be baptized into Christ. And he goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Before you give your life to Christ, let me just warn you, there's a price to pay for this. If you give your life to Jesus, you're going to be persecuted. There's going to be some trials. That's how it is. So who's in? And you know what? They said, us. We're in. He rose from the dead. Of course we're in. If it's going to be tough, so be it, right? He says in verse 5, for this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. Because I was afraid that in some way the tempter, what? Here's our enemy again. And now he's changing tactics. He's going from trying to stop us to trying to tempt us. All right? I was afraid that the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless. I mean, dude, we lead you to Christ. And three months later, you just knuckle under. You get seduced by temptation. You stop walking with the Lord. Ouch. That'd be disappointing. Look at verse 6. But Timothy, <laughs> he just come to us from you. And man, he has brought us good news about your faith and your love. He told us that you have always have these pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we long to see you. Man, look at the affection in this church, the affection for each other, the affection between them and their pastor. Look at verse 7. Therefore, brothers, in all of our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. Paul says, man, I'm pumped up. We're pumped up and encouraged by the faithfulness that you're demonstrating in Thessalonica. So now, man, we really live. Now I can relax. Man, it's all worth it because you are standing firm in the Lord. Verse 9, how can we thank God enough, man, for you in return for the joy that we have in the presence of our God because of you, because of your faith. Night and day, he says, we are praying most earnestly that we will see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now, don't miss this. You guys are strong but there's still some missing pieces. Amen? Amen? You guys are standing up, but you still got some blind spots. Amen? Amen? You're good. You're strong. You're new. Don't get cocky. You're standing firm, but you still got a lot to learn, just like all the rest of us. Amen? Amen. And then in verse 11, Paul just launches into a prayer right in the middle of this paragraph. You know, he's just so thankful to God for what's happening in Thessalonica. He just can't stop. He just can't stop himself. He just starts praying about it. And can I just tell you that here at our church, we do this pretty regularly in our leadership culture. You know, when we have our leaders together, pastors or elders or whoever, and man, we look at some blessing, we just think only God could have done that. Or we look at some big challenge and it's like only God could get us through this. Very often we will stop the meeting and pray in the middle of the meeting because we don't believe churches prevail because of excellent leadership and great wisdom. We believe those are all good things, but it is the power of God that makes the church prevail. And that power is accessed through prayer. Amen? Amen. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's talking, talking, talking. I just got to stop and pray. And so look at verse 11. He says, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ clear the way for us to come to you. Satan's trying to block us with opposition and temptation and persecution. Lord, just clear that mess out of here. 
But whether he does or not, may the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everybody else just as ours does for you. Let me tell you, that's what I pray for you. That's what I pray for you, that your love will increase for each other and for everybody else. The people in this city will think this is the most loving church in the world. Just as I love you, I'm praying your love will be felt all over this community. Verse 13, I'm praying that he will strengthen your heart. Man, he's praying that Christ will make you wise, that Jesus will encourage you, strengthen you, so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when the Lord Jesus comes for his holy ones. He's coming back, and my prayer is that when he does, you will be found blameless and holy in the presence of God. Now, before we unpack what all this means, let's take another look at verse 8. Where Paul says, man, and now we can really live, we can relax, life is good. Because you are standing firm, and you're standing firm in the Lord. Now, why in the world is Paul making such a big deal about people standing firm in their faith? You know the answer, right? Because not everybody does. Not everybody does. I mean, we all know that when there's an earthquake or a hurricane, sometimes buildings collapse. And dude, sometimes they stand firm. Both get hit by identical tremors and winds, but the response can be dramatically different. And in this passage, Paul is going to talk to us both about the forces that will inevitably impact you as a follower of Jesus and how the Lord Jesus has already empowered us to stand firm. And he begins with this reminder. Faith that stands firm is designed to go long. Everybody say long. Long, long strong faith, right? That's, that's how faith is supposed to go uh, and I want you to just think for a minute with me about how people come to know the Lord, okay? Now, let's just imagine that this graph, faith, is here and lifetime is down here, okay? Now, when Paul rolled into to Thessalonica with Silas and Timothy, as far as we know, there was no church there at all. There was nobody in that town that, that was a follower of Jesus. However, they started talking with the Jewish folk about how sin destroys relationships with God and everybody else. And they already knew that was true. And he started talking about how Jesus made it possible for anybody to be reconciled with God and forgiven of their sins because he was God. And they said, why do you think that? And he started talking about all the miracles that Jesus did to prove he was God. And the most amazing miracle was his historic resurrection from the dead. You know, Jesus then taught that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. And many, many folks in that Greek city respond to that message and they put their faith in Jesus and they were baptized to declare their faith to the world. And when they did all of that, they entered into stage one, which is what we would think of as saving faith. Okay, when they put their faith in Jesus, they got saving faith. Now, before that, they did not have faith. They were lost. Before they put their faith in Jesus, they were lost. But in that, then they entered in stage one with saving faith. This is what Paul was talking about in chapter 2, verse 13, when he says, We also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. Man, and when you put your faith in Jesus, the word goes to work in you and save, faith saves you. And man, when your faith is real, it does a saving work in those who put their faith in Jesus. And then, of course, if your faith is real, you go into stage two. And in stage two is what we might call sanctifying. Sanctifying faith. 
And sanctify means to make holy. It means that you become like Jesus, more and more and more like Jesus. This is what Paul was talking about in verse 10 when he prayed, man, we pray that we will see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now, friends, in this sanctifying stage of faith, we need to fill in the gaps. We've got to fill in the gaps, man. As great as their faith is, they still got blind spots. As great as their faith is, there are still gaping holes that need to be filled with God's word and discipleship and teaching. And friends, that's true for every one of us through every stage of our life. Amen? Amen. So this need to supply what is lacking in our faith, that's not an insult. It's an affirmation that for every follower of Jesus, for all of your life, your faith needs to be growing and progressing. And bro, if that ever stops, that's bad. And he tells us what it will look like if your faith continues to grow and progress. In verse 12, he says, May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and everybody else just as ours does for you. If you want to know if your faith is growing, are you becoming more loving? And are you showing the love of Christ in more dramatic ways to other people? Now, friends, Jesus had a brother named James. And James in his book said, If you don't see this kind of sanctifying progress in your life, if you don't see your love increasing and overflowing in service, bro, you better do a gut check and see if you are real or not when you put your faith in Jesus and accepted him as your Lord and Savior. Because, you know, Savior means that his death on the cross is going to forgive you of your sins, and only he can do that, and thank God he did. But Lord means when he gave his eternal life to you, you gave your life to him. And he doesn't expect you to be flawless. But he does expect you to make progress. He expects you to be growing. He expects to be the dominant influence in your life now. And if your faith in Jesus has no effect on the decisions you make, you better do a gut check and see whether that faith is real or not. Because if it's real, saving faith is going to lead to sanctifying faith. And then sanctifying faith is going to lead you to sustaining faith. This is the kind of faith that makes you resolute, steadfast, uh, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, all the way to the end of your life when you finally find yourself standing before the Lord Jesus. Paul talks about this in verse 13. He reminds the Thessalonians that, you know what, the day's coming when Jesus is going to come back. He's going to return with all of his holy ones who have died prior to his return. Over and over and over again in this epistle, we're going to discover statements about the return of Jesus and so if your faith is real, it not only deals with the baggage of your past, it not only empowers you for changing the present moment, and it, but it sustains you through your entire life, culminating in this joyful participation and the return and the victory of Jesus at the end of all things. At which point, Jesus will be acknowledged by believers and non-believers as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And for believers, that will be awesome news. And for non-believers, that will be the worst news they've ever heard in their life, that I rejected the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Now, friends, Paul is writing these people in Thessalonica with an assumption that where there is genuine faith, there will be faithfulness. There will be a persistence in that faith that sustains it all the way to the end of your life. And friends, this is why it's so important that when you see somebody, some friend, somebody in your life who's getting shaky or getting blown around by the winds of life, that you encourage them, that you move toward them, encourage them to stand firm. 
You know, F.F. F. Bruce was a famous New Testament professor at the University of Manchester in England years ago. He said, continuance of faith, that's the test of its reality. Continuity, continuance. In other words, if you want to know if a person's faith is real, look at the long game. How is their faith progressing? Watch the way it persists. Look at how it just goes on and on and on. Friends, faith that stands firm offers Jesus a long obedience in the same direction. Amen? Now, friends, faith that stands firm is also destined to be tested. Everybody say destined. Now, this is what Paul says in verse 3. He says, I don't want you to be unsettled by these trials because you know quite well that we were destined for this. Why in the world does Paul say that believers are destined to go through difficult times? I mean, think about it. Paul is devoting a whole chapter in the Bible to encouraging people to stand firm Apparently, he knows that there are forces in our world working hard to discourage us from standing firm. For example, Paul mentions the opposing work of Satan. Did that preacher say Satan? Yes, he did. Satan. Paul said, we wanted to come to you. I more than anybody else. But Satan stopped us. Now, when I first read this, I was like, what? Satan stopped the apostle Paul from getting back to the church in Thessalonica? Dude, that's opposition. Now, I want you to know, 2019, I still believe in Satan. I believe in Satan for a lot of reasons. Here's number one. Jesus believed in Satan. Amen? Jesus said Satan was real. Jesus said Satan tried to stop him early in his ministry. And Jesus told his 12 friends all about it. And Matthew wrote about it in Matthew chapter 4. And I just believe that when somebody rises from the dead, whatever he says, I'm with him. And I don't know about you, but that's how I feel about it. I know there are a lot of people here who do not believe in Satan. And can I just tell you, that is fine with Satan. That's fine with Satan, y'all. He doesn't mind at all if you don't believe in him. You know, C.S. Lewis has written something really wise about this. He says, you know, Satan doesn't really mind if you totally ignore him on one side or if you're totally obsessed with him on the other. Either way works for him because either way, you're out. You're neutralized. You have opened a door for him to do exactly what he wants to do in your life. People who are obsessed by Satan, they're obsessed by the demonic. Man, they are paralyzed by fear or mesmerized by idolatry and getting involved in the occult. You know what they are? Neutralized. Because they're giving the devil more credit than he deserves. I mean, people like this mistakenly assume that Satan's like God. He's all-powerful. He knows everything. He can be everywhere at the same time. None of that's true. But people who obsess about the devil think he's got his little finger stuck in everything. On the other hand, those who are totally ignorant of Satan, ignore him, doubt he even exists, are totally manipulatable by him. They are unconscious victims of his deadliest ploys. Either way, they pave the way for, the, for his evil work. Now, F.F. F. Bruce again says Satan's main activity is putting obstacles in the path of the people of God to prevent the will of God from being accomplished through them. And so if believers are obsessed by Satan, they're not going to do anything. They're paralyzed by fear, so he wins. On the other hand, people who don't even recognize the reality of spiritual warfare, man, they're going to be stumbling around all over the place, not realizing why life gets so hard, blaming the wrong people, blaming God for the devil's work, taking out their frustrations on the wrong people, never occurs to them 
that they have an enemy of their soul who's having a field day. So it's really important that we maintain a balance here. Paul says that Satan is a powerful force, so much so that he stopped the apostle Paul, who is like an evangelical bulldozer. Now that is serious opposition. On the other hand, the Bible teaches that only God is all-powerful. We talk about his omnipotence. He is all-powerful. Satan is not all-powerful. He is powerful, but he's not all-powerful. Satan is knowing. He's been executing his strategies for a long time, but he is not all-knowing. Satan is a very real presence, but he is not omnipresent. He can only be in one place at one time. How many of y'all think he's in Savannah? Or you think maybe he's in D.C. <laughs> or Hollywood <laughs> or Pyongyang or somewhere like that, right? Moscow, I don't, I don't know. He can only be in one place at one time. So let me summarize what the enemy that Paul, let me summarize the enemy that Paul says he's having to face in ministry because we're going to have to face it as well. And I'll use a picture from the Bible. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter says, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He's real. He's dangerous. He hates you. So run, hide, quit. No. Resist him. Everybody say it. Resist him. Standing firm in the faith because you know your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Now, friends, if you've ever seen a real lion, you know that is a terrifying image. But apparently God has put this roaring lion who is absolutely real on a very short leash. So he's powerful, but he's not as powerful as the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Man, consequently, when you feel like the evil one is just tearing you up, dude, go to God's word for encouragement. Go to your Christian friends for encouragement. You can resist him. It's possible to stand firm in your faith. Others are doing it all over the world. You can too. And listen, man, when you see somebody in our church who looks like they're being opposed by the devil, encourage them. Now, I'll be honest with you, this is one of the great mysteries of our faith, that God would allow Satan to oppose the apostle Paul and keep him from getting back to encourage those new believers in Thessalonica. Now, why did God do that? Why would God allow that? I don't know. And I don't know anybody else who knows. And anybody who tells you they know, I think they're a little goofy, all right? We just have to guess. Maybe it was so that Thessalonians wouldn't start this hero worship thing with Paul and they would have to learn to trust the Lord and not man. Maybe it was so they would learn to be encouraged by more than one voice. Have you ever met somebody that only goes to church when a certain person is preaching? And if somebody else is preaching and they find out, they go to Cracker Barrel? <laughs> you think that honors the Lord? I mean, really? I mean, I get it. You know, if you have a consumer mentality, I get, I get how that would work. But do you really think that honors the Lord? Maybe the reason God did not allow Paul to go back is so that those Thessalonians would grow up and they'd say, hey, I love Paul, appreciate Paul, but I can learn from Timothy too. I can learn from anybody who's teaching the word of God. Maybe God allowed the devil to stop Paul so that Paul would learn to trust God to take care of people that he can't get to. I mean, so you can't get back to Thessalonica. You think I don't have a hundred other ways to encourage those guys? Now, friends, this mystery is even more complicated than that. In Acts chapter 16, it says that before Paul went to Greece, he wanted to go to Messiah and Bithynia, which is up north, 
And then Luke says in Acts 16, the Holy Spirit stopped him. So sometimes there are roadblocks in front of us because of the activity of Satan. Other times it's possible that the Spirit of God is trying to tell us something. I don't want you going north to Messiah and Bithynia. I want you going west to Philippi and Thessalonica. And if I feel like telling you why, I'll tell you. And if I don't, just do what I said anyway. Which God is in his rights to do that. Now, friends, when you're praying for specific direction from the Lord and you feel like you're hitting a roadblock, it takes, it takes a certain amount of just spiritual sharpness to determine whether you're being blocked by the devil or you're being stopped by the Holy Spirit. And this is why it is so vitally important that you do not remain shallow in your faith. Man, it is just vital that we grow and get strong and learn to stand firm. Man, we need to be able to stick together with our brothers and sisters and strengthen each other and love each other and encourage each other to stand firm because we are being opposed. Now, friends, there's a lot more we can say about all that, but that's enough to now because opposition is not the only tool in the devil's toolbox. Look at verse 5. Paul talks about the tempting work of Satan. Satan tried to put a block and move on Paul, but Paul's major concern when he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica, he said, I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you, and then all of our labors might be in vain. Paul's trying to give these guys a heads up. One strategy of Satan is to hinder you. The other strategy is to tempt you. Now, I watched a card shark on a, on a documentary one time, and this guy was, this was a bad man. He said, I'm the reason your mother told you never play cards with strangers, because I will hurt you. Satan's like that. He's smart. He knows every tale you've got. He can spot every weak point in your armor. He is the master of putting very tempting opportunities right in front of you. And you know what? If you fall for it, if you go for it, maybe you'll just miss what God had in store for you in that season of your life. Or maybe you'll end up in a spiritual shipwreck. But here's the point I think Paul's trying to make. There is nothing unusual about Christ followers being opposed and tempted and living under the gun all the time. Now, friends, look at this last part of verse 3 one more time. You know quite well that we were destined for these trials. I think Paul's just trying to be realistic here. We're combatants in a war. Man, we live in a world that does not appreciate the values of Jesus. We have a spiritual enemy who's trying to block us or tempt us or whatever works for him. We have a selfishness inside of us that keeps jumping up, trying to get us to put ourselves first. And dude, we got to fight all that. Now, you know, the Greek word translated temptation and testing are both the same word. And what that means is when a trial comes and you just cave in, it becomes a temptation and it leads you to sin and it makes you weaker. But when it comes up and you resist it, it becomes a test and it results in character and it makes you strong and firm in your faith. Now, I have a friend who's really struggling with infertility. I mean, struggling. She has lost many babies. The last baby she lost to miscarriage was the day before Mother's Day. And it broke her heart. She is so disappointed. She is so grieving. She is really being tested. Amen? She is tempted to think that God is taking the lives of these babies. 
that God is taking these babies away from her. And I don't believe that. I don't believe God works like that. So she called me, why is God doing this to me? And I had the opportunity to encourage her. Now, when I want to encourage somebody who's grieving, I say a number of things. And I never say all of what I'm going to tell you at one time because it would be too much. You know what I'm saying? But I have a few things I want to say to people that I think are tempted to be discouraged because of hardship or whatever. And here's the first thing I say. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry this is happening to you. We live in a broken world and bad things happen and it's happened to you and I know your heart is broken and I'm sorry this happened to you. But God will get you through this. God will get you through this. He's here. He knows. He cares. He loves you and he is acquainted with grief so he can be a real strength to you in this hard time. And God didn't do this to you. God loves life. He loves children. It's the devil who wants to steal and kill and destroy. It's because sin of sin that our world is broken. Sin in a broken world is why little children die and go to heaven before they ever even have the opportunity to be born sometime. But God didn't do this to you. Sin broke our world. God is grieving with you. He knows what it's like to lose a child. He can empathize with you. And I want you to know that I love you and I'm here for you. And if you want to talk, here's my number. Call me, text me. I'm going to be praying for you. I'll talk with you anytime you need to talk. I want to encourage you. You do not have to walk through this valley of the shadow of death alone. God is here. I am here. We're here to encourage you. Now, friends, faith that stands firm is designed to go long. And it is destined to be tested and friends, I don't have time to say much about this, but you know, Paul will ring this bell one more time before we go. Faith that stands firm is developed by encouragement. Everybody say encouragement. encouragement. Man, I love that Paul is separated from these Thessalonians by over 300 miles, but in verses 12 and 13, he wants them to know, bro, I am praying for you. And you know, think of the encouragement that must have been to those folks who are going through persecution. I mean, just being there is encouraging. These Thessalonians are getting their neck knocked off by human persecution from the Greeks and by spiritual opposition from the devil and by personal temptation in their own heart. And then they get this great encouraging letter from a guy who lives 300 miles away saying, I'm praying for you, I love you, I'm pulling for you, you I, I'm, I'm behind you. And they realize the apostle Paul's pulling for us. He's talking to God about us. We are not alone. And I think just being there sometimes is a really encouraging thing. Now it's Father's Day. Uh, so let me show you a video of, of a dad and his child having a, a little conversation that I thought was kind of cool. Y'all check this out. Take a look Did at this. Did you understand it, though? Yeah. No. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Not, not this one. This is the grand finale of this. Okay, the last? Yeah, that's the last one. That's what I was wondering. I don't know what they're going to do next season because they did some stuff this time. Exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> hey, it goes on and on, y'all. You, you know, it's worth watching, I'm telling you. Did anybody here understand a word that baby said? I didn't either. I don't think the baby understood a word he said. I'll tell you what I think he did understand. His daddy was with him. His daddy loves him. His daddy is there. And you know, sometimes when you're getting, a, getting hits, that's all it takes. 
just to know that somebody's there. I think praying for somebody is really encouraging. Friends, we don't always know why somebody is suffering. Maybe the Lord is disciplining them. Maybe the Lord is trying to redirect them. Maybe the devil is trying to stop them. Maybe temptation is trying to derail them. We don't know. We don't, we don't have God's perspective. We don't understand all that. But I'll tell you, when Paul feared all that, he prayed. Prayer is what he went to. And that prayer empowered these folks. Now, my, my Sarah's sister, Becky, uh, went through a brutal cancer with, uh, battle with cancer a couple years ago. And, and you know what? By God's grace, she prevailed. Uh, Becky's doing great. God bless. She's healed. She beat cancer. Doing great today. Praise the Lord. But man, when she was going through chemotherapy and radiation a couple years ago, that was tough sledding. And she lives in Montana in a 100-year-old log cabin, and it is bitterly cold. And she went through chemo all winter, and it was too, she was too sick to get outside. You know, when Sarah went through this, it, just getting outside looking at the sky, you know, lifted your spirits a little bit. You know, you don't even know there is a sky until, like, after Easter when you live in Montana. So, I mean, it's, it's just gray, overcast, discouraging, depressing and so the Lord just moved me to call her one day. And so I called her on the cell phone and my, it went to voicemail. You know why? Because I am not Norwegian. And they, I'm, I'm a Marian. They don't answer the phone unless you're more Norwegian. They just let you go to vo voicemail apparently. So anyway, I called her and went to voicemail. And I thought, well, you know what? I can pray on voicemail just like I can with her in person. And so I prayed for her on voicemail and left her a prayer on voicemail. And I didn't hear anything from her for a couple months. And then she called me and she said, I just want to thank you for praying for me. And I was like, what are you talking about? She said, you, you remember you called and prayed for me and you left me a prayer on voice, man. I was like, yeah, I do remember that. It, it, it was a blessing to her that somebody who lived a continent away was thinking about her and praying for her. And then she said, thank you for leaving that prayer on voicemail. I have played that prayer 50 times. Every time I get low, I play that prayer. And I did not see that coming. I, I, didn't, I didn't think God could use a little thing like a recorded prayer to encourage somebody I love over and over and over again. But he did. And you could do that, right? You could do stuff like that. I have a buddy in the church who texts a prayer to me almost every morning. And it's encouraging. It's a gift. Man, when a friend is getting hit, knowing that you're praying for them is a great encouragement. And then finally, you know, standing firm is an encouragement. Paul said in verse 7, in all of our distress and persecution, we were encouraged because of your faith. You know, a couple years ago, Sarah and I took a motorcycle ride through the Redwood National Forest, and those trees are amazing, amazing. And while I was on this trip, I realized my wife is a tree hugger. <laughs> literally, literally. <laughs> These trees are huge. You know, they can grow to be over 300 feet high. That's a football field, right? They say one tree can weigh two million pounds. I was shocked to learn that the roots are never more than four or five feet deep. But they go out 100 feet from the trunk of the tree and they intertwine with all the other roots of all the other redwood trees. And friends, that's why they're so stable, even though they're so tall and so heavy. And I think that that's how it is in the church. What makes us in the church so stand so firm is that we stand together. We stand with Jesus, and man, we stand with each other. And I think this is just a healthy image of a healthy church where we are rooted in the Word of God, we're connected with each other in worship and service and life groups in such a way that when somebody is getting hit, we know, we care, 
and we encourage. Amen? Father, thank you. Thank you for this opportunity to just unpack a chapter of your word and learn some, you know, insight about how to encourage, how to be encouraged, and Lord, how to encourage each other. And I pray, God, that our church will become the most encouraging place in the world, and it will start today. And we pray this in Jesus' strong name. And all God's people said, amen, amen, amen. amen.